The Poorly Made Police podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This podcast has explicit content and is meant for mature audience. The views expressed on this poorly made podcast reflect the opinions of the guest and host. They do not reflect the opinion of any department or entity. Nothing on this poorly made podcast should be construed as legal or marital advice. If something offends you, I kindly invite you to lighten the fuck up. If you want to support this very poorly made podcast, click the link at the end of the description and become a monthly sponsor of the podcast. Or buy yourself some nice poorly made police memes merch. Not only does it look good on you, it's also a favorite of wives, exes, children, nurses, nuns, IA investigators, defense attorneys, and the chief. And of course, take care of the fine sponsors of this podcast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the orgasmic sound of a crown vic. Oh, hey there. Welcome to another fine edition of the Very Poorly Made Police Podcast. I am your host, Lenny. How are you guys? This is your, it's not really an Easter-themed episode, but it is coming out on Easter. I am on a very poorly made vacation right now. And trust me on that one. Trust me. But because I care so much about you guys, I'm recording ahead of time, so you guys don't miss out on any of the poorly made goodness that you need in your lives. This podcast is a little bit different than what we normally do. I I don't get why people say we, and I do it too. It's not a we, it's just me. It's a little bit different than what I normally do. That's better. I'm talking to Charlie from The Rule Badge. Charlie's a writer, and she writes magnificent articles about things that happen out in the country that we don't hear about that happen in rural areas in America. And although she's not a cop, she's really a strong advocate for law enforcement and her writings I've always found really speaks for law enforcement and gets some stuff out there that maybe people aren't hearing about. And she does excellent research. So I thought she would be a good guest to come on and just talk about some of the stuff. I think you guys will enjoy the podcast. It's a, it's a little more negative than usual, but it's, it's some good information. So I, I, I think you guys will like it. But before we get into the podcast, I got to give big thanks to our friends over at Officer Privacy which I have big news about officer privacy. I have the man, the myth, the legend. I have Pete James coming in on the podcast in about a month-ish. I'm really excited to sit down and talk to him about his policing career and all the stuff he's gone through. And then obviously we'll talk about the officer privacy stuff too. I think that'll be a very informative episode. So I'm really looking forward to that one. I think you guys will like it too. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, your information is available to anyone with an internet connection. This information includes your home address, phone numbers, names of relatives, and more. If you Google your name and the city you live in, you'll see dozens of people search sites exposing your private information. And it, it doesn't need to be up there. This information can be used by stalkers, criminals, and identity thieves. It is dangerous, but you can do something about it. You can remove yourself from these sites and take your privacy back. Finding the sites that have your information and going through the removal process can be time-consuming and frustrating. Each site has their own unique opt-out procedure, and many do not delete your information the first time you ask. And then, you got to keep track of it all. Then after you're removed, you will be re-enlisted in those websites. So, this, so the cycle starts all over again. OfficerPrivacy.com can help. 
OfficerPrivacy.com has two ways to help you take your privacy back. Do it yourself. Officer Privacy created custom, easy-to-use software so you can quickly navigate through the top 50 people search sites and delete your information. They have instructions for each and every site, and they include a simple way to keep track of it all. They provide access to their software free for 14 days. Plenty of time to go through and remove your information. Or you sign up for the premium service, and they do everything for you. You sign up in OfficerPrivacy.com. Staff of current and former U.S.-based law enforcement officers will remove you from the top 50 people search sites. Then they monitor those sites, and if you show up again, they remove it again. So, again, big thanks to Officer Privacy for putting on the show. All right, without any further ado, let's play some music for you all, and we'll get into the podcast. And I think we're back up to my good friend's Weekend Picnic, and we're going to go with a song that I don't believe I've played before. But I'm not good at keeping track of these things. This is Weekend Picnic and their song, Great Escape. And we'll be right back with Charlie from The Rule Back. All right, now the moment you've all been waiting for. I have the legendary voice behind the Rule badge, and I guarantee I'm going to say Rule wrong every single time it comes up this podcast because I cannot speak. I have the legend herself. I have Charlie. How are you, Charlie? I am just fine. How are you today? I'm just living that dream. Now, one of the reasons that I wanted Charlie to come on is frequently when I have some long post on Poorly Made, which I know you guys hate, you guys just want me to just make memes, but occasionally I want to voice my opinion on something. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, from the top ring, here comes Charlie in the rule badge with some amazing articulate comment. And I'm like, stop being so sensible. How dare you? So we got to talking one day and I was like, I need to have Charlie on the podcast because she's such a great advocate for cops everywhere. Can you tell the millions of people that are going to listen to this podcast a little bit about you? Yes, I can. Um, the first thing that I would want people to know for certain is I, I'm a writer. I'm not a cop. Basically, I am a storyteller. And um, I try to use what gift has been given me with words to advocate for law enforcement, specifically officers who work in rural and remote places or for small departments and for the people who love them, because uh, it's a very different sort of a life from what people see on the news everywhere. Everybody thinks that it's all, I don't know, Dallas or Chicago or New York or Los Angeles. And the fact is there's tens of thousands of officers out there working, some of them in the middle of nowhere and no one tells their stories. So that's what I like to do. And you've done a magnificent job. Anytime I see one of your posts come up, I make a point to read it. And they're always just very well researched. It's not to like crap on anybody, but there's, I don't know if you will agree with me on this, but I've definitely seen some quote unquote news organizations that are quote unquote pro police. And they basically, they either repost, you know, whatever mainstream news media's article and then add their opinion to it, or they just post whatever without any facts, and there's not researched. Where when I read your stuff, it's actually researched. There's actual information in there, and it's not some you know fairy tale. I don't know if, if you've noticed that too. I won't name names of some of these websites. 
Um, actually, yeah, there, there's a couple out there that are kind of embarrassing, and I try to avoid because so much of it is, um, it's honestly manipulative. That's not a very nice thing to say, but it's, <laughs> but, but, but it, it's, it's true. Um, and uh, I, one of my blog posts that I wrote, I, I, I got really cool readers, and I really enforce kind of a civil tone on the Facebook page. And because of that, the people that are left, you know, I'm not the biggest page out there, but I've got a really, really loyal core because the people that do read my stuff, trust me. And they know if I get it wrong, I'm going to say so that I will wait sometimes for weeks to post something before I will run something that turns out to be wrong because the information wasn't out yet. And I actually asked them one day, if I wrote a piece on media literacy, would you read it? And they said, oh, please do. And I thought, wow, you guys are as nerdy as I am. And so that's, I, I ended up writing that for the blog because everybody reads news, but honestly, most people don't know how to read news. And that is a skill and it can be taught. Yeah. I, and I think we could probably do like a four hour podcast on all of that. What I really wanted to do is get your insight on some of the issues that are facing, you know, the small town cops, which if I get back into law enforcement, which I think hopefully I will at some point, it's going to be in a small town. I'm, I'm never going to the big city again. I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. I'm sure there's big city departments out there that are good, but I, I think in my opinion, in, in rural America, people are better, hate to say it, but for the most part, I think they are. And I think you have a better chance of having a supportive department, but maybe I'm going to get disproven on this podcast. Before we get into that though, I want to lean on some of your knowledge a little bit. So you've, you've been married to a cop for over 30 years, right? I have actually this year it's 35. Wow. That's, that's good. I mean, that's, that's it's rare. People, people don't get married and stay married anymore. It's, it's kind of wild. Like people are kind of like, Hey, how many divorces you got? Ah, I'm up to four or five. Oh, you're doing great. It's, it's a little bit different world. I mean, I've, I've been married for a long time, but 35 years is really an accomplishment. Well, I, I think so. And it's not, and it's not been easy. And I think you're pretty familiar probably with what the divorce rate is with law enforcement families. You have to start out with the idea that it is forever period. And, you know, there's a reason that the vows include for better and for worse, because it's just built into life. Yeah, I, I think, and, and that's been a theme on some of the relationship podcasts I've done is I think people think every relationship is going to be sunshine and rainbows. And look, I love my wife, but she has pissed me the fuck off sometimes where <laughs> same thing, right? Like, I think she loves me. I, I'd have to ask her to be, to be sure, but I've, I'm, I've know I've done things that aren't great and I haven't been a good husband, but no pressure here. I need you to tell the young folks that listen to this podcast, the guys and the girls, what it takes to have a successful relationship with a cop. And on the, I guess on the second hand of that, you know, what, what does that person need to do to be a good spouse? There's a couple of levels to what's going to create a really good and long lasting relationship. And I will tell you that the very bedrock for our relationship has been our faith. I'm not going to get all preachy on you, but I will tell you that when times are really hard and you're going through those times where honestly, you're sitting there at an anniversary dinner and you don't even like each other anymore, you'd better have something bigger than just your feelings to ground that relationship. You better be building on a bigger foundation than that. 
Um, that's that's the absolute number one thing. We made a promise before God and to each other that we would stick with this. And there are days when that's all you're going back to is that promise, that oath. You guys know what it means to swear an oath. And that's what marriage vows are. You would not break your oath while you're at work. You put on the belt, you put on the badge, you go to work and you have a sworn duty to do what you've said that you would do. And, and marriage vows are no different than that. And then on the very practical level, I'll, real quick, before things? you get, before you get to the yeah. practical level, I have to just tell you that was probably the most intelligent thing that's ever been on my podcast. <laughs> that's not so I, I heard you talking to it. I, I, I was listening to one of your, your podcasts a little while ago with a lawyer who was doing cool stuff. Totally different though. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go on. Not at all. Um, uh, I would say too, especially for, um, the spouses and I can only speak as a wife because that's what I am. Um, I probably had it easier in some ways than some of the younger marrieds now, because we got married in the eighties. There was no internet. There were no cell phones. Um, the best advice I got from an older police wife when we before we even got married was down down a scanner because you will not be not listening to it if it's there you're going to listen to it um and i have known police wives who have been listening in you know in the middle of dinner with their kiddos let's listen to daddy and and ended up listening to some stuff they cannot unhear and guess what neither can your kids and so we've been through everything lawsuits shootings um a 10-year service gap when my husband left and then eventually came back um it's really common and people don't talk about those sorts of things but it happens um but i didn't have to read about it on facebook and i didn't have to make a choice whether or not to track his phone or to worry because he's not answering my text. It was simply, you just make a life. No news is good news. Um, if you get a call from dispatch in the middle of the night and it starts with Mrs. So-and-so, this is not an emergency. They're just passing on a message from, from your husband because he's tied up on a call or, or he is doing OT, finishing a report or whatever, and you, and you go back to sleep. But um, that was that was one of the easiest things. So I, I would tell young women now and, and probably I'm, I'm pretty sure they're not going to listen to me. I've actually made some people mad saying this. Don't have a scanner. Don't track his cell phone. Just don't just tell him good night. And when he goes to work and I love you and I'll see you when you get back and then then have a life, do things, have another focus. I got a couple of things I wanted to dive in to what you just said. The, the first one being the like the family tracker apps. Mm-hmm. I have friends with that. And I'm like, that is insane. <laughs> I get, you know, you want to make sure people are safe and stuff like that. But I just, boy, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm God forbid there's like an emergency, right? Like your kiddo goes missing and Hey, we got this thing tracking him, but they can ping cell phones now anyway. So, you know, if it's an emergency, so I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know why if you, if you feel the need to track wherever your spouse is going, you're probably having a problem. Yeah, I, I don't. That's that's not anything I've ever been doing. Um, and I, I think it provokes a lot of really unhealthy anxiety and an already anxiety inducing uh, relationship and career field. 
Um, you know, it's like if you're going to sit there and go, oh, my gosh, he's heading to the hospital. He's been there for an hour and a half now. And, and honestly, statistically, he's most likely just babysitting somebody waiting for clearance for the jail. You, why did you even need to know that? What did that add to your evening? Yep, I completely agree. And don't even get the scanner app on your phone. You just, you don't need it. No, you just don't. don't, You do not need it. Um, I I think honestly, all of that is is really great information for the the folks out there because sometimes you know you just got to learn from what other people experience. And and unfortunately, nobody wants to listen to anybody's account anymore. They just want to kind of. And I'll be honest. I'm the. I think the the correct term is an asshole. I will ask people (laughs) all the time what I should do or their opinion, or if it's something they've been through. And then I ultimately end up going and doing my own thing anyway, instead of learning through their experience. So I'm kind of a hypocrite for even bringing it up, but it is good to listen to your, you know, your peers. Everybody thinks, you know, different generations are out of touch. They just had different stuff. They went through different things in a different way, but I think you can translate all the stories if that makes any sense. I think you can. And another advantage I think that I personally had, and this isn't a generational thing, this is just specific to my family, is um, my dad was career military. He did not retire until I was a freshman in college. And so I grew up with my mom basically modeling that for me. Um, He was gone. They tallied it up when he retired. He was was gone away from the home um, in some other physical realm uh, for a full third of their marriage. And obviously that was way before the internet or cell phones. So we were talking about if he was, you know, way downrange someplace, then it might be one Mars call a month. And in between, you don't hover around waiting for the next one. You might write letters, but then you get on with life. You got kids to raise, you have a lawn to mow, you have bills to pay and you do those things. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Now, the third thing that I wanted to get into, and I meant to get into this earlier is the whole police wife thing, which when we first started talking about, you know, what we were going to talk about on the podcast, I asked for your perspective on the police wife. And your response was, well, I didn't really get into that because where we work, there wasn't that many cops. There weren't that many police wives. There wasn't this big police wife group thing. And I, and I wanted to compliment you because, and I'm not, you know, there's that whole exception, not the rule kind of thing. I, I feel like there's kind of this police wife thing that maybe they're hurting more than they're helping where I appreciate what you did is you you're actually you're not again not to be mean or derogatory towards people but we've all seen some of the police wife type posts and it's just it's hard to watch like it's like a train wreck like what what are we talking about why are you saying any of this but I I appreciate what you've done even though it does relate to policing as you've actually you're bringing something to it and Honestly, it helps. It helps to have a voice because cops, there's a reason we're cops. We're not articulate. And so that's where you come in to save us. That's what I want. And and that's why I've never made it as as much as I could avoid it. I've not made it about me. And most of my readers didn't know that I was female, let alone a police wife for a long, long time. I I didn't. well, and, and honestly, I, I feel like most of what I'm writing really shouldn't have anything to do with that anyway. So if you can't tell, then I'm doing it right. Charlie is short for Charlotte. Charlotte Pitt is a literary character um, I've identified with for a long time. If you Google it, you'll figure out why. Um, but Charlie is uh, androgynous for a reason. 
Um, and my husband was still active in law enforcement when I set up the page in 2016. And I needed a firewall between my online shenanigans and uh, his actual physical work out there. Um, I wanted to be able to say the things that he couldn't say out loud and not just him, but all the other people out there like him. And honestly, I didn't know if anybody was going to be listening when I started. And I've kind of turned into like, you know, Radio Free America for rural cops. I, I'll have them send me stuff behind the scenes just all the time because they can't say it out loud. And that's all I wanted to do. I, you're right that I don't, I don't have a, like a ladies auxiliary community or, you know, a police wives sisterhood thing going on because the departments in a lot of rural areas, the largest department my husband ever worked for was 29 officers. And he worked several other places um, on down to being finally the only district attorney investigator for the whole county for the county from which he retired. So the whole idea of the, you know, in this family, no one fights alone and, you know, the blue line brotherhood and stuff, honestly, that's like, it's alien. And so when I, I sent to you the, the page from my blog that explained why I did this stuff, it was because um, I, I had actually been talking with a group of other police wives that I had joined back when it was a forum and realized I really, wasn't having productive conversations with anybody because we weren't even talking the same language. They were all city cops' wives and their experience was not my experience. It, it was frustrating. It was really frustrating. And uh, my wife was in one of those groups for a while and she said basically all the posts were about, oh, my husband's, you know, cheating on me with, you know, this person or that person. And it, oh yikes! <laughs> that was all it was. I, I don't know if that was your experience. No, that was that. It was not that group. It was. It was. This one was a little more grown up than that because I would. I would have lasted all of three hours in that group, and I'd have bounced. <laughs> I don't have. I don't have patience for that. I don't know. Every this is another rant I have is everybody's all about like putting their entire life online and airing every bit of dirty laundry on earth. Like if if you suspect your husband's cheating, I don't know if a Reddit forum or a Facebook group is is maybe the place to go with that. I could be wrong. I would probably go with somebody that I really trust in my life. I, I can't think of anything less productive than going public with something ugly about your spouse. I mean, you should never compete with your spouse. You should never run them down in public. Never. If you've got criticizing to do, that stays behind closed doors and preferably between the two of you. You should only ever be building each other up. That marriage is already trash if she, if she's doing that in a forum. Yeah. Well, and again, kind of back to what we're saying. If you if you think they're cheating or you have to track them, you you already have a problem. I think we should talk about police stuff though. If you're good with that, I'll talk about whatever you would like me to talk about. <laughs> magnets. How do they work? Magnets. Just, oh my it's, word! It's an old internet joke. Um, <laughs> I was going to say physics are not my bag, but you know, yeah, they're fun. I, magnets are fun to play with. So I, I have no idea how they work. It fascinates me. All right. We're going to take a quick break and get a quick word from our sponsors. I want to talk to you all about refuge medical. You've heard me talk about them in the past and I've said their kit will beat what your department issues. If they even issue anything, I can attest to that. I recently received the, the bear 3.0. It's awesome. 
I'm blown away with how much great stuff is in there. We talk about training all the time. We talk about everything you could do to be prepared as a police officer. Well, be prepared for the worst case scenario. Be prepared for the situation where you need to apply aid to yourself or your buddy and have the right equipment on you and know how to use it too. Not only does Refuge Medical have this great equipment that I can send out to you, they also do training classes all throughout the country, so you can look for that. Now, this kit, which has a really cool name, Bearfac 3.0, sound like donut operator, but this kit is perfect for at home, in a vehicle, a great kit for bleeding control at schools, businesses, churches, everything. This isn't just something cops should have. This is something everybody should have. But in our context... This kit is credited with saving lives from the battlefields of Afghanistan to serious motor vehicle accidents here stateside. The unique design of the Bearfac inner pouch allows for rapid deployment of life-saving equipment while not sacrificing organization and retention. We've all been there, right? You're trying to grab something out of a first aid kit and everything falls out. This one's built different. The medical components have been thoughtfully laid out. And it's American-made. Do yourselves a favor, go get a nice piece of equipment that's important for you and your buddies and go check out my friends, longtime poorly made police meme supporters, Refuge Medical. Now back to the podcast. So the, the, the main thing I wanted to talk to you about is there's kind of this myth of Mayberry, which I'll be honest, I may have made some memes that perpetuate that. Um, in my in my younger days, since I've you know been making memes for so many years, just like three. But the, the thing I guess I want to throw out there is just kind of a disclaimer. I think not every meme is going to hit with every single cop or every single person because some people don't experience law enforcement the same exact way, which is kind of what we were talking about, you know, with the police wives thing is people experience that side of things a different way. And if if you're a big city guy, you have no idea what the county guy is dealing with. The county guy might know what you're dealing with because they see it on the news, but we all know that the media isn't exactly truthful all the time. So I, there's this kind of this myth that, you know, if you work in some small town or small jurisdiction, there's no problems. You're going to be safe. No one's going to hurt you. You're not going to be involved in a critical incident. And, and it's, it's bullshit. Would you agree? Absolutely, I would. Absolutely. Um, I would say what happens, though, is because of the nature of law enforcement in the United States, because it's all decentralized and scattered, all of these things happen all the time, and there's no communication about it. Um, And especially if it's happened in a small area, a rural area, an area in the middle of nowhere, it will get um, local coverage. And then no one will ever hear of it again. So because it didn't repeat itself a million times in national news, it doesn't exist. And I can give you a really good example of that if you would like. I would love nothing more. Okay. Um, I've written a couple of times about um, an incident called the Colebrook murders. Are you familiar with those? You said the Colebrook? Colebrook, C-O-L-E-B-R-O-O-K. And uh, what happened was back in the 90s, um, a guy who was an anti-government extremist in New Hampshire um, had been feuding with local authorities over things like building codes and stuff like that, typical stuff that that those guys object to. 
and ended up killing a judge and then a newspaper editor uh, and then a couple of state troopers and then got into a running firefight that lasted, no joke, all day, went over state borders um, because it was in New England. The state borders are not very far. The border, border patrol was involved. Um, and by the end of the day, um, there were a half a dozen people um, dead or wounded. I've never and, heard of it, to be honest. I... Exactly. And it happened the same year as the North Hollywood bank robbery. Have you heard of that? Oh, absolutely. I've heard of that. Yes. Um, were there any cops killed in the North Hollywood bank robbery? I don't believe so. No, there weren't. But there were in the Colbrook murders and, and a judge and a newspaper editor. Um, and so not only has no one heard of that incident, even though it happened the same year, because it happened in a really, really tiny town, um, but the newspaper editor's staff went ahead and put out a paper that day. They covered their own editor's murder. Well, the, you know, yellow tape was still up in the parking lot. Wow. And they put out a fan. They were um, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And guess who they lost out to? Probably something to do with the North Hollywood shooting. They did. They lost out to the Los Angeles Times for coverage of the North Hollywood bank robbery. I, you just enlightened me. I'd never heard of any of that. Yep. Um, if let's say if there is a really, really famous, if you know, I'm sure you've got your computer up and running. There is a pic- picture of um, a New Hampshire game warden's badge. Um, his name is Lieutenant Wayne Saunders. He's re- um, retired now, and he is actually um, one of the hosts of Warden's Watch podcast. And um, he was a young game warden in the early 90s, was part of the Colbrook incident. And there is a very famous picture of his badge with a bullet hole in it. That badge saved his life. And that's part of that incident. That's interesting. And not to go, man, I heard of not, this is like way off topic, but I, I, there was a shooting in Colorado before I was a cop deputies fighting with a guy, the guy fires around at him. It hits his badge and it goes up instead of stopping it. Yes. Um, And that, Ah, oh, terrible, terrible. That one was bad. I that was like down the road from where I was living at the time. So that one always sticks with me. Uh, continuing on, so there's this perception that nothing happens in the small towns. Like if you work a, a small town, nothing like this is going to happen. And you've been kind of doing some research about this too. Like over the last, what, you looked at what like the last four or five years. Um, I started in 2019 um, by myself, at least tracking officer shot. I actually started it in 2016, but I was using someone else's database and they abandoned the project and the link broke. So, um, yeah. So all the stuff I had done with that at that time kind of disappeared. And about 2019, I finally decided if this is going to happen, I need to do it myself. And so I started tracking officer shot, which lots of people do. Um, you know, DOJ does and, and the National Fraternal Order Police and, and all that sort of stuff. What I'm doing that's different is I'm breaking it out by population. Um, and uh, just because there isn't a really useful working definition for what rural means, I just kind of picked up, I decided anything under 30,000 and then I broke it down again to under 11,000. And uh, so every single shooting that I can find of any law enforcement officer with in the United States or Puerto Rico or Guam. Okay. Um, I include in that database, whether they're local state or federal. And um, I started counting them. 
just to find out, you know, is this just me overreacting to our personal experience of um, the presence of violence in rural places, the idea that uh, criminals will leave big places and they will go to small places because they think they can hide there. They think there aren't any cops. They think no one is looking. Um, and no one cares about anecdote. No one cares about your story. No one cares about your feelings. What they want is numbers. And uh, so I've been doing that. This will be this will be the fourth year. And I want to get at least five years worth of data. And honestly, what I'm hoping is that somebody bigger than me, who's a real statistician, um, a real research person, instead of just kind of a data nerd like I am, will take this and look at it and say, wait, this is not what I expected at all. Um, there's been other grassroots stuff out there that has worked well. Blue Health has succeeded in getting um, federal attention for numbers of officers suicides. And uh, honestly, that's kind of what I'm hoping with these databases that I'm keeping. I want somebody bigger than me to go, wow, you know what? Being a place, you know, we're serving a town of 8,000 people. That's not reason for us not to get our guys TAC med training because these things happen. That's, I, I talk to officers who still aren't being issued vests or who are checking vests out like, like you know, they used to check out a, a portable radio in the 90s. And it's part of a pool that it's not custom fitted to them. It might be expired. Um, and some of their bosses will actually use the fact that seriously, this does, that, that stuff just doesn't happen here. We don't need to worry about it. And that's not true. It's really easy as a, a big time, big time, that's the wrong way to put it. Uh, as a former cop that worked in it, I would say it was a pretty big city, not like the biggest city, but a, a pretty big, big area you know, my complaints, I, you know, I could bitch here and there about gear, but overall it was pretty good. You know, we had what we needed, you know, we had a, a ton of money allowance to get a good vest, even if we ended up sending a little bit more on our own stuff, you know, everything's for the most part is paid for where guys out in the County and in, in rural areas, not only are they getting paid significantly less and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of these places, they're actually having to pay for boots and pants and a, a belt and their own gun and a vest and things like that? Um, very often. It depends um, very much on the state. I don't know how familiar, and this is actually something I learned from one of my readers who was an industrial hygienist um, and taught me that there is a difference between state OSHA and fed OSHA states. Um, that if, um, if a state does not have its own OSHA, then that state by definition defaults to fed OSHA standards and federal OSHA standards specifically exclude law enforcement agencies from safety regulations. Well, it's not a dangerous job at all. So that exactly. makes, it makes total sense. <laughs> and so, you know, if you are a private employer, let's say you're a paint contractor and you don't provide your employees with appropriate safety equipment, or you provide them with a ladder that is faulty and they get hurt, OSHA is going to have something to say about that to you. But if you are a law enforcement agency in a state that defaults to Fed OSHA and you don't provide appropriate safety gear or you're providing worn or expired gear, or as I've heard from some officers, uh, patrol cars that don't have cages, patrol cars with bald tires and bad brakes, um, OSHA has nothing specifically to say about that to you at all. I, I really think the answer here is to defund the police, right? Oh, That's absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 
Well, it, and I have a couple couple quick thoughts on that. It, when when I bring up leadership issues, I'm not even talking about, um, you know, I, I would never imagine a, a chief saying, ah, oh, no, you guys don't need that stuff. And my department sucked. And I know people that listen to the podcast worked where I worked. It sucks. It is a fucking dog shit department. Excuse my French. I feel guilty because um, you're a real guest. But but I, I never had to worry about like a ballistic helmet or, oh. you know, they we even got issued. Uh, here's another one that it, it drives me insane. Guys don't have tourniquets. Yeah. got issued tourniquet. A tourniquet. They're not that expensive. I'll tell Guys you a story about that. I'll tell you a story about that one. And I, I love cannot, stories. I cannot be specific about the department because I don't have anything except a trainer's word for it. And I'm not interested in, in a war or a libel suit. I guess this would be slander. It's spoken. But anyway, um, one of my readers who is a TACMED trainer in one of the Great Plains states um, reached out to me after a particular critical incident. And I had seen it in the news and I had taken note of it because it was a really small town, um, very young officer in a foot pursuit, got shot, bled out from an extremity. Um, this guy hit me up and we had chatted before and uh, I've actually since interviewed him for proper articles. So I've checked out his credentials. I know he's legit. And he was just boiling, absolutely boiling because... Within the six months before this young officer died, he had approached that chief about safety gear. He had approached that chief about TACMED training, and the guy seriously just told him, tourniquets cost too much, and we don't have $100 for TACMED training. Once this officer is dead, now he's a hero, right? And we're going to go get a new road sign, and we're going to name a section of road or an overpass or something for him. And all that sort of thing. And see, this is where, and that's probably the police wife in me. I start to boil too, but I can say it out loud and no one can fire me. You know, I I often said, right or wrong, that I was worth more dead. And because, look, if, if something happened to me, you know, the department has their little, you know, fund, the, the feds will pay out on that and all that stuff. There's also, I, I feel like police departments and chiefs, and this is why, you know, guys like salty guys like me get upset. It's easier for them to go talk at a funeral. This is going to upset some people, but I don't care. I, I really feel this way. There are some chiefs and administrators out there that it's easier for them to go talk at a funeral than to actually, you know, go to whoever they need to get the money from the, the county commission or the city council and say, hey, our guys need this and that. They're, they're not asked. advocates. They're not advocates for cops. They're politicians at a certain point. And it it makes my blood boil because ultimately everyone that's in some kind of administration, administrative position was a street cop. Almost every single person. They should fucking know better. I have had police chiefs and sheriffs and I don't get me wrong. I'm not down on all of them. I know it can be done well. One of the reasons I am hard on police leadership, especially in small departments, is because my husband was one of them and he did it right. So I know it can be done. I know there's ways to make things work. There's ways to find the money. There's ways to get the equipment. There's ways to get the training, but you have to be innovative and you have to be super stubborn and you have to not take no. Um, but I have had some police chiefs and sheriffs and yeah, honestly, sheriffs have been worse about this in some ways. Um, actually tell me when I brought up things like federal grants 
for new vests because you can renew those like every year. You can get on your five-year cycle and you can make sure every single one of your guys has a brand new custom fitted vest right on time and it's totally paid for. And I've had them just absolutely say, I will not be beholden to the feds. I'm not going to apply for that grant. Uh, it's like they're, they're loathing for the government is so strong that they the, the whole hook for those grants is you have to write a policy that says they have to wear the vests and then you have to make them wear the vests. That's the only thing that they hold you to and they won't do it because it's a federal grant. And I'm like, that's super short-sighted. I guess you better have a bake sale. The other thing too, and I worked for a police training company very briefly and, and people would ask questions about certain things. And I think something that's always forgotten as far as get money for training and other things Almost every single state, you know, the government has grants, right? You know, you can look into this stuff. Like one guy specifically said, hey, I live in the state. I don't have money for training. I Googled a state. I Googled training grants for police. And I found a whole list of stuff that they could do and different people they could contact to get the funds to go to the training. It's out there. And like you said, you have to be innovative to do it. And you have to be stubborn about it because ultimately it's on unfortunately, especially if you work at some place where they're just going to tell you, no, okay, now it falls on you. You have to make the choice. Okay, well, I need a vest. I need, you know, I need a tourniquet. I need this or that. You have to make that choice. You know, if you're going to be, okay, well, I'm going to have to advocate for myself because they're not going to advocate for me. Well, yeah. I mean, I've actually told some officers that are working in really tiny places that make really not much. I mean, somebody for whom a $500 for a vest would be a true hardship. I talk to guys sometimes, they're they're still making $14, $15 an hour, which blows my mind, Um, but it it happens. And I'll tell them then, okay, first you need to be looking for a different job. But while you're looking for that different job, you need a vest. So you go do whatever you have to at your bank or whatever to get a $500 secured visa and you buy that vest and you pay the minimum on it every month for as long as it takes. But you get that vest and you wear it no matter what. Ask your mom for 10 bucks toward it, whatever you have to do, but you get that and you wear it. And in the meantime, you are not a tree move. Find some place to work that values you because if you don't place any value on your life and on your health and on your time and on your skills, no one is going to do that for you. We often have the conversation about like, oh, you know, leave these big city, de- city departments because they're not going to treat you right. Same goes for the small town. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, they're really great to me, blah, blah, blah. Are they though? Are they? If you're okay with making 15 bucks an hour and not having basic gear, they're not treating you right. They're maybe mentally, uh, the, probably the wrong word. You're the smart one, not me, but... <laughs> Maybe they're, they're, they're treating you right in one sense, but in the other sense, they're not. Go somewhere else. Well, and eventually, they are going to have to, hey, we can't keep officers. We're going to have to change things. Although, to be honest, and I don't mean to go on like a rant, I feel like that's some of these police departments are a revolving door because you know, I, I've heard people say, oh, well, this department's a stepping stone to other places. And they just accept that as the status quo because, well, we're just not ever going to be able to hire at a high enough rate, people are going to basically people are going to use us to get through the academy, work here, you know, a year or two, and then they're going to jump somewhere else to make real money. People in granted, I don't think I have the audience to, you know, county commissioners and stuff. 
Think of the money that you would save on training and other stuff if you could keep people there. It would be amazing. Well, and that's one of the things where, where nobody has actually presented the numbers. And to me, again, that's on the department head to make that case. And, and you have to do it like as if you were building a court case. Find out what it does cost. What does it cost you to go without an officer, to be down a position? What's it costing you in overtime? Um, my, if you read my bio, whether it's on the blog or on the Facebook page, my background is in writing and in teaching and in marketing and in recruiting. Um, those are the things that I know. I don't have a degree in criminal justice. I have a degree in business. Um, it costs generally, uh, depending where you are, of course, somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000 to recruit and to hire and to train one police officer. Obviously, that's an average. It's going to be less in some places than in others, but it's still going to be a lot. And then if they walk out the door in six months or four years, you've lost all of that. And you have to do it again. And that's, it, that's a very poor way to spend your money. It's, a, it's poor planning. You shouldn't be looking six months down the road. Look down the road five years or 20 and see what you can do. Um, and I, I've told people before, and, and I, I don't always make people happy. That's probably why I don't. I don't have one of the big fancy Facebook pages. I have a nice steady one because I will say things like, if you say I back the blue, but then you flinch when it costs, you don't, you don't get to <laughs> that. I can't, I know I shouldn't laugh at that, but it's true because I think some people kind of hide behind and I'm, we're not going to get political here, but I think we can all kind of, you know, make our own opinion, quote unquote, what side backs the blue, but then what side doesn't pay the cops there? Not everybody's perfect in this scenario, right there. there you can point fingers at a lot of different people. Well, and it's true. People will can people, and this is just me going on a rant. People will back the cops when it's convenient. They do. And if you if you've read some of the stuff on my page, one of my big personal kind of causes is ongoing support for officers who've been wounded or disabled. Um, because those are the officers. When you said um, I'm worth more dead than alive, I have actually had officers tell me my family would be better off if I had died. And, and unfortunately, they, it's true. It's true. Financially, they, financially, I don't want to say like I, you know, I wish they would have died, but if well, you no, they, they know pragmatically, what you mean. financially, they they know what you mean. Well, and because it's not just, um, it's not just about the money they're not making or what it costs to be hurt. Um, you know, there's this big myth out there that there's some magic system that kicks in to take care of officers when they get hurt. And nothing could be farther from the truth once, uh, with very few exceptions, once they've gotten home from the hospital, um, the headlines move on, everybody goes back to work, and then they're in this giant one-on-one -on -one battle with workers' comp. Um, their pay is significantly reduced, um, especially in the small departments in the rural areas. Um, HR is not on the ball um, with having things like long-term disability available for them to buy into things, even like Aflac. And honestly, if you're making 14 to $15 an hour, maybe you really can't afford the extra um, that, it, that it would take to buy into something like that. Um, and so all of a sudden they find out when they've run out of their vacation time and they've run out of their sick time um, that they might be making one third of what they were making before. And in rural areas, there is a there's almost no such thing as like a trauma center or a rehab 
right there in town. Uh, and it's not unusual for an officer who gets hurt in the middle of nowhere, assuming he survives the golden hour, um, to end up, uh, you know, say he's got a really big neurological or spinal cord injury, he ends up at, at Craig. That's in Colorado. Well, if he was in Nebraska or Oklahoma, they put him on a plane and flew him there. How does his wife or family get there to visit? Or if they need to be there to be part of his rehab, let's say he's going to be on a vent now. Um, the family has to learn to manage that as well before he can come home. That means now if she had a job, she doesn't anymore. And there's the travel costs and all those sorts of things. And then that doesn't go away. If it's a permanent disability, it goes on and on and on. And yeah, that's, it's harsh and it's hard. And um, most departments, especially small departments don't have good disability retirements. And honestly, and boy, this is gonna make some of your listeners cranky. A lot of conservative states have the worst disability and retirement benefits for law enforcement. Um, uh, we spent most of our time, most of our adult lives in California and we moved away from California when my husband retired. We live in a very red state in the Mountain West now, and I'm really glad to not be in California and I'm closer to family, but I look around at what I'm learning about the way law enforcement works here, and I don't know that I could recommend it, not because there, there's no anti-cop demonstrations in the street, there's no your buildings burning or you know cars being flipped over and everybody you know smiles and waves with all their fingers when cops go by here. But the only disability retirement system is fully funded by the police officers in the state themselves. There's no state program for it, and it's capped at a specific amount, and it only is for specific sorts of catastrophic injuries. And it didn't exist until a couple of years ago. So what did everybody before that do? They struggled. And that's, you know, it sucks that people have to survive off of GoFundMes. Right? Uh, that. Go, a GoFundMe, I, it's another thing I'll tell people, a GoFundMe is a Band-Aid on an arterial bleed. Yep, it really is. And, and it's embarrassing. Um, it's, it's, it's no different than, you know, and yes, I'm sure everyone does it with the very best intentions, but if you had to actually see these guys sitting in their wheelchairs with, with a tin cup outside the CVS or whatever, would you feel the same way about it? I don't know. I, I could just go on and on about that. It, it's frustrating that that even has to happen, right? You know, something happens to some guy across the country and I get a lot of GoFundMes and I try to share them because I, I want to be helpful. But A, people see that and they're like, well, you know, I don't, you know, we see so many of them, right? So, so many of them. I, I try and help as often as I can, but you know, I, 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 mean, I make a podcast in my basement. I don't make a ton of money, you know? Um, <laughs> and you got little kids. I got little kids and like I, I feel bad because there's, you know, all these great pages out there that, you know, they donate portions of their stuff and God, I really want to do that, but I'm not, I'm not in a position to help anybody. Right. Where you, I think you have to be in a position to help somebody before you can actually help them. And, you know, and I try, I try really hard guys open up their pocketbooks, but I, I got to tell you, if I, if I share GoFundMe on my, uh, on my Instagram, there's not many link clicks and I don't get mad at people because, you know, especially cops, cops don't have money right? Well, Especially again, rural cops. And so uh, we're basically where we have to rely on each other instead of relying on the people that employ us to take care of us when something happens. And what would happen if let's say all of our military members who get hurt were treated the way cops are when they get hurt. And I am speaking from knowledge of that my, as I said before, my father was career military and my son serves. 
So I'm, you know, not, I'm not blind or naive about what that system is like, but as messed up as the VA is, cops don't even have that. There is no single place that you can go to and say, I'm not being treated appropriately. You can't, uh, you know, they're, they're screwing up my billing and I, I can't get any further with them. I'll call my senator and ask him for help. Um, there's no mechanism like that because it is so scattered. And, um, but that's not the perception that the public has. Part of the reason I, I've seen the, the comments on social media when someone shares a fundraiser and nobody's clicking and they'll say, well, we're compensating for that. Well, they're still getting paid while they're hurt because they're still working. And it's like, well, doesn't sort quite of. Like that. Yeah, but, it really doesn't. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to the podcast. I want to talk to you about my buddy Brad Williams over at Police Fit. You guys see him on the page every single Monday on Poorly Made Police Memes. Brad's going to help the new applicants and active officers smash their fitness and regain their health. Brad has 11 years experience in the fitness industry, 17 years in the military, and is also a first responder. He's going to share his experience and expertise to help applicants get their dream job and help active first responders regain their health. That's Police Fit, and I'll have a link for you on the podcast description. Back to the podcast. Now, to jump back into your research, because I think we've covered, you know, the aftermath pretty well. What are you finding out about these critical incidents with officers that work in the smaller areas? Um, well, let's see. For three years running as of last year, it's holding pretty steady that about a third of the officers shot each year um, were attacked in places with fewer than 30,000 residents. So those are the places I write about. Um, A full 25% of the fatalities are from those areas as well. And a similar proportion of the vest saves, which tells me that these guys need that safety equipment just as much as the guys in the big cities. And the thing is, too, it's not necessarily an equal comparison. If you say, okay, 25% of the fatalities come from places with 30,000 or fewer residents, um, if you look at the breakdown of the way police departments are distributed, about 5% of the police departments in the United States employ more than 60% of the officers. Which is amazing, right? You yes. have these big departments with yes. you know, thousands of officers, thousands upon thousands of officers where you know many agencies are less than 10 guys and gals. And more than half of them are. And so if you're still seeing a full 25 to 30% of the officers who are getting, um, getting shot or getting killed that are coming from those agencies, that's almost disproportionate. And I'll tell you the reason, because I know somebody else is going to go out there, well, you know, that more of them get hurt in car wrecks than getting shot and stuff like this. The only reason that I'm tracking officers shot and not just officers injured overall is because I'm looking at a metric of, of dangerousness. And it's pretty hard to argue intent with a shooting. You know, if, if somebody, um, you know, it, it's hard even to rule like an officer gets uh, run over on a traffic stop or laying down spike strips or something like that. There's still going to be some tiny little bit of doubt in there. Was it intentional? Or was it not? Regardless of whether it was criminal. Yes, it was certainly criminal, but was it intentional? If you point a gun at someone and pull the trigger we've pretty much dispensed with intent at that point. And that's the only reason that I concentrate on that when I'm counting these things. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I think sometimes people 
get maybe way too far out of scope and then it kind of skews all the numbers. I think that's a really good metric to have. Now, I, I think, and I, and I asked people on Instagram and about, you know, their perceptions of small law enforcement agencies and more specifically, is it more dangerous to be a cop in a rural area and than a city? Just myself, I was thinking about some things where I worked, there were two major hospitals within a couple miles, yep. like trauma centers, not like yep. rinky dink hospitals, trauma centers. Yep. And then another great one, you know, 10 miles away. If you're got, like where I live right now, I don't think the any of the local hospitals are quote unquote trauma centers. Now, granted, you got flight for life, but you know, I'm where I'm at, you know, Kansas City, Omaha, Des Moines, hours away, each one yes. of those hours away. Yes. That that's a problem. If you get shot where I'm at, you could be in some serious trouble, especially if you don't have basic gear, a tourniquet, a vest, all kinds of the other stuff. Especially if you're by yourself. Because a whole lot of the time, the guys that have really critical injuries that actually make it to a trauma center, um, even when they're really close by, um, made it there because there was someone else to, to pack them up. And exactly. a lot of the guys that are working in places um, right now, I'm, I'm looking at, at one of my older articles, and I am looking at a memorial on a highway in the middle of nowhere in Nevada where... Um, a highway state trooper, a Nevada state trooper sergeant was killed. And it was ages before they even found him. Because which, it which is, is just... incredibly sad that you're basically out there alone. Yeah. Where, where I worked, there was every call we went to was always somebody with you, always yeah. another officer with you, which yeah. if just give me one moment to, to steal the microphone on, because I have a rant to go on. Oh, go for it. Frequently in the comment. And I, I make just to make this a big, broad statement. As I said before, different cops have way different experiences. Frequently, I will see smaller town guys like, oh, well, I can go to this call by myself. And it's it's almost like a badge of honor. My perspective on it, you should be asking your, and I get funding's an issue in these smaller places, right? There's not a lot, maybe there's not a lot of industry. Maybe there's not a big tax base, but that's not a badge of honor. You know, to trash somebody for going for using all the available tools, that's that's ridiculous. If you have cover, go to your call with cover. It, that's the, as simple as it is. Even if you work in a small place, wait a couple minutes if you can. Go to your call with cover, especially a DV or whatever it is. To me, it's not a badge of honor. If you got to do what you got to do, if, if you're the only cop and you're that's what you signed up for, and I hate using that line, but you know what I'm saying? then that's what you do. You have to go to that call by yourself, but, but you know, you don't need all these other guys. I don't know why these city guys have all these other cops. Why wouldn't you use the resource? What, like you're being cavalier about your guy's safety. And especially in a rural area, people say, Oh yeah. In the big city, there's all these people with guns. You think that's not true out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Everyone has guns. You idiots. Sorry. There's my rant for the day. No. And it's a completely legitimate rant. Um, I, I think that the main problem that most officers run into in rural and remote areas is there simply isn't backup. Um, the, the county we lived in in California was about 3,000 square miles, and it was completely routine for one or two deputies to be controlling the entire area by themselves because that's what there was. If they had backup, it was going to be a game warden or a forest service officer, um, maybe highway patrol if they were near one of the main arteries. Um, and this was a place that was designated as um, high intensity drug trafficking. 
Um, it was one of the only places that you could get from the coast to um, I-5 in the middle of the state uh, without going all the way south to San Francisco. Um, and it was ex extremely remote, but that was, there was only one or two deputies working ever there. My husband was, um, the department had for another small department there. And he had a guy that was retired LAPD who came to work for him. And he was amazing. He was just, he's the coolest guy ever. But, but um, he told us after he'd been working there for about a year, I had to unlearn everything. I had to unlearn everything. Because, you know, he, he started, he started, he got out of the academy during the Watts riots. And, you know, he was involved in, in three gunfights down there in LA. And, you know, he did all these incredible big city things. He was working in anti-robbery detail during the North Hollywood bank robbery. And the bad guys knew how his detail dressed and they saw them posted up and they rolled on by and robbed some other bank. But when he came up here to this place where there was no one, he had to learn to be polite. He had to learn to drive slower because driving really fast through town offended the locals <laughs> who might well be his next backup. Um, he had to learn to wave back when people waved at him because it was rude not to. Um, and he had to learn that he couldn't jump in with both feet no matter what was going on because there were not going to be a dozen backup officers there within seconds. There weren't a dozen officers in the entire county. Another caveat I want to add to this, and this was something off of Instagram that I'm stealing, but it, it was a good point, is in a big city, especially a high crime area, you get the reps and your your heart slows down a little bit when it comes to it. And don't get me wrong, training is great. You know, the whole, the old saying is, is train how you would do it, right? The, you know, guys that go and take the BJJ classes, the guys that go out and do the extra stuff to be prepared, all the things you can do, right? You know, going to the range, dry firing, you know, thinking through the things. I think part of law enforcement is some of that stuff. And that, that was a conversation I had a couple of podcasts ago about, you know, the training is there's only so much you can learn in the academy. You have to get out and kind of get hands on the repetition where in a big city, you know, you're doing this stuff on a daily, weekly basis where out in the county, maybe you do have a day where it's out of control, but it's, it's, and you correct me if I'm off base here, but generally it is, it is a little bit slower pace, but then when it hits the fan, it really hits the fan because you don't have all these other resources. But I think when you're, you're, you've, you've slowed down your breathing and your heart slows down a little bit when you had the repetitions of going through something critical it helps out a lot. And I think, you know, for, and I'm not saying small town guys can't handle it. You know, a lot of guys have been in the military and things like that. So they, and even combat, right. We're coming out of a couple of wars. There's guys with combat that have been the combat or, or rural cops, but for some folks, they just don't have that hands-on experience. Am I off base with that? Is that something that could come into play with this? No, not necessarily. Um, I think a lot of it though is about, it's a different kind of an attitude. And that, that's why, you know, I, I try to make it clear that it's two different worlds. They're parallel worlds. Sometimes they intersect, but they don't compete. And I think that's kind of a trap that, um, as you said, men are competitive, cops are competitive. Um, and that's where you get this kind of, you know, chest beating thing going on about, well, you guys don't do this and you guys don't do that. Um, it's, a, it's a different world and it's a different kind of an outlook. 
um, you're going to run into the same people over and over and over, um, and you're going to have to deal with them because, um, because A, you don't have a partner because there's probably not going to be a supervisor on scene. There might not be a supervisor on shift. You're going to have to deal with it. Um, but not only that, but you're going to see them uh, probably the next day in the grocery line. And your kid probably goes to school with them because there's only one school. And, um, you know, their grandma might volunteer at the church or, or the soup kitchen with your grandma. And um, that makes it a whole other kind of a thing. I think it, I really like that analogy of, you know, they're, they're parallel and sometimes like they intersect. Cause I think that's, that's great. And I wasn't trying to be derogatory towards the small guys, town guys, but I think there's some guys that are really great big city cops. That would be awful, awful county guys or rural agency guys. And oh, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I think, <laughs> Those ones go to work for the small departments. The small town guys are like, I need you to slow down. I need you to smile sometimes. I need you to take off your shades. I need you to take your hand off your gun. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and but but you know, on the same side of it, I think there's some small town guys that could would never make it in the city that are fantastic small town cops. And really quickly though, to, to to jump on that train really quick is us big city guys, sometimes we forget because we're so I don't I don't know the right way to art articulate it but you you just get burnt out and you're just you know you see so much terrible stuff not to say small town guys don't but you just you're kind of dead inside and so you you forget sometimes to be a person the the people you're interacting with even you know whatever call it is a burglary a theft any they're still people too so i think the small town thing there where you interact and smile and make eye contact when you're talking to people and you communicate i'm stealing somebody else's story but it was great I just heard it today. This guy was, he sent me a message. He was telling me about what happened to him where he, he made a bunch of arrests one week and his supervisor calls him in and says, Hey, you, you didn't use any force this week. Is everything okay? Which is insane. Right. He said, well, <laughs> yeah. what are you talking about? He's like, well, you know, the other, other people here, they, they've made, you know, all these arrests too, but you know, they've had a couple of uses of force. And the guy replies, well, there's this thing called the alphabet and I use it to formulate words. And so mm-hmm. I talk to people yes. and I don't have to fight them into handcuffs. Yes. This, this was a big city cop. I obviously, you know, it's just some guy in my messages, but that doesn't sound like out of the realm of possibility. And I base that on too. Like I, my dad always told me that he thought I'd be a better small town cop than a big city guy. Cause he's like, Oh, you're just too nice of a guy. Thanks dad. I thought I was fine in the big city, but I, I felt like, the whole flies with honey thing. That's big city guys. You can use that too. They're, my rant's over. You can have the microphone back. <laughs> well, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I actually posed a question um, on the Rural Badge Facebook page uh, a little over a year ago. And it was a ball. And I just asked them, what, what are some things that rural cops know that city guys don't? And I would bet probably 80% of the answers, the ones that didn't have to do with wrangling animals in one form or another, um, had to do with de-escalation and it came down to um, you have got to use your words you have to develop some personal charm you have to be patient because um, yeah what is your hurry actually if the option is just you and this guy rolling around in the dirt trying to get handcuffs on what happens if it doesn't work when if you took a little extra time with it maybe you don't have to do that thing 
it's you know? amazing how well that works. And, and that might, it really might does. upset some folks, but it, it really does. And, and it's not 100%. I mean, I, I completely understand that it takes two people to de-escalate. On the other hand, as you said, um, finding out who people are, um, talking to them, realizing, as you were saying about, you know, the, the burglary victim or the robbery victim, this is routine to you, to them. It is their worst day ever. It is oh, their absolutely. worst day Absolutely. And sometimes ever. we forget that. And, and, and to them, they're having the worst time ever just trying to handle this, this thing. And, and maybe if, if you can just for a second, hear that, even if you think it's silly, and even if you think they're overblowing it, they don't have to know that, you know, you can pretend you can smile and nod and pretend and that's okay. But would you handle things differently if you knew your wife was going to be standing next to them in the bank line the next day? Right. Well, and be the cop that you want to respond to your call. Be the cop that shows up when, you know, one of your family members. Remember to us, to, oh, I can't say that. I can't upset people because I'm not on the job right now. But to cops, you may take that burglary and it's just another burglary. But to the person that's calling, stuff in their house just got stolen. Somebody was in their house. That's it. You have to take that into account. You can't forget that. Even if it's the hundredth burglary report you've ever taken, you can't. And that's exactly that. true. And developing relationships with, you know, with their family. Um, I've talked with with um, officers a lot about that. Um, there's a, a police, small town police chief in Oregon that I interviewed, and. Um, he was talking about, you know, going to all these community things, not just to show your face, but to actually get to know people. Because when bad things happen and you need to find the bad guy, where do they go? They go to grandma or they go to mom or they go to the girlfriend. And if you already know grandma or the mom or the girlfriend, maybe they'll call you and say, he's here and I know he needs to come in and I don't want either of you to get hurt. And wouldn't that make things better? Amazing. That whole alphabet and words. It's amazing how that works. <laughs> and, and building I, relationships I, too. I I think the other thing that we, we've kind of skated around a little bit talking about building relationships in a small town. There are those people that, you know, they're, they hate cops. Not just people in big city hate cops. There are people in small areas that hate cops. And oh, yes. it's, a little harder to hide when there's not a big population. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows where everybody lives, what everybody drives. That's yes. why building the relationship or even having a rapport with this person, even if they're um, an asshole, is important. It does help. And, and if nothing else, it helps you weed them out. And um, that's one of the things, a kind of uh, a focus that ends up on my page. And it's one that does tend to irritate people. Um living where we did in remote mountain communities, the people that hated cops the most there um, were not usually, you know, gangbanger transplants or the drug dealers. It was a lot of times uh, sovereign citizens, tax deniers, people of other anti-government slants. And it's, you know, super fashionable right now to hate the government and all that kind of stuff. But it does take it to a rather personal level for a law enforcement family when the guy that's going on and on at, at a county meeting about what kind of flag we ought to be flying is the one that's trying to follow you home because he wants to kill you. Yeah, and, and people kind of play off like, oh, the sovereign 
sovereign citizens. They're just, you know, they're just dingbats and they're trying to get on YouTube. There are some of those people, but there are definitely some very dangerous people that fall into those groups because, you know, they associate, you know, even the small town guy with big government and they have a huge problem with government. So anybody that has any affiliation with the government is potentially an enemy. And a lot of these folks are well armed and know how to use firearms. Well, and honestly, law enforcement is probably the most visible representative of a government that offends them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I ask people is I, I did a little poll and it said, is it more dangerous to work in LEO in the city, in a rural agency, and that the danger is the same in both places? The At 45% is the danger is the same in both places. Oh, interesting. I'm surprised. I'm surprised it was that high. Um, city came in at 40 and then 15% of folks said rural agencies. I'm going to kind of steal your thunder. I was going to answer it differently, but you're more articulate than me. It is, it is parallel universe, but sometimes, you know, they collide. There, there's just different levels of danger and different things that are dangerous. And yeah, you could say, oh, well, there's more gangbangers and, and blah, blah, blah in the, in the cities. But honestly, like their, their bigger enemy is other gangbangers or they'd kill more cops. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like there are people, there are people that target cops for sure. Don't like misinterpret that. But, and I've said it on the podcast, if more people wanted to kill cops, they would. Cops are a very easy target, no matter how safe you think you are food for thought. But to me, I, and this comes from a guy that worked in the city. I think that the level of danger, you know, maybe you're going to more dangerous calls on, on a regular basis in the city. Okay. But then you have all these other factors as a rule agency, you know, lack of medical equipment, lack of a hospital, lack of backup, all the, it, they all add up and make the same number, but it's all different math. If that makes sense. That was a, I, I, no, I, I think it's a pretty good call. I, I think it is. And that's, like I said, I, I try really hard not, not to make it a competition because it's, it's really two completely different worlds. Um, and I think it requires different sorts of mindsets, as you say, maybe even different sorts of personalities, um, you know, and, and there are people who are cut out for all sorts of jobs that are then going to fit well or not fit in another atmosphere. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, I, I do think if somebody say was making a leap from a large department to a small department, there's some things that they really need to look at carefully before they make that jump, because I think they may come in with an unrealistic set of expectations um, as far as their resources, as far as funding, as far as ability to advance. Um, if you work for a department with a limited number of positions, you may be on patrol for a really long time. Or if it's county, you may actually end up in the jail for a really long time. Uh, I've known people who had to wait for someone to die or retire before they could become a detective or a canine officer. Um, you know, there, there isn't, if, if you've got a department and say with, with 10 people, how much command staff is there going to be? And are yeah. you okay with that? Yeah, you know? exactly. And will your body let you do that? You know, because that's, that's another reason I think we, we don't see a lot of really seasoned officers on the street like we used to. Um, because there used to be, especially in cities, not just things like detectives positions, but, you know, there was the, the crusty old desk sergeant and the guy who, you know, took phone calls and 
the guy who worked the evidence room and and all those things those are all civilian positions now they're all non-sworn and uh, the fact is that this is not a job you can do forever um, and are you going to be okay with that if, if there isn't any place for you to be ad- and for you to advance? Are you going to be okay with working patrol until you retire? And if not, then what? Um, if you're moving to a smaller place um, and you have a trailing spouse, is your spouse going to be able to find work? Are they going to be able to find the kind of work that they are able to do? If you need childcare, does it exist? Um, we are the into when my son was small. We were living in a small town in California, and there was not a single daycare in the entire town that accepted an infant. Yeah, we have one day of childcare, and we drive 30 miles to do it. Exactly. And it's a real problem, especially, you know, that's everybody jokes about it, but a lot of cops marry nurses, and they both work shifts. And if you can't arrange it so that you can work opposite shifts, or you need more sleep than that, um, it's almost impossible in a small town or a rural area to find overnight daycare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and that, and that's tough, right? Where when you, what do you do when you don't have that option? What do you do? Well, and that's the thing is, is a lot of uh, people will, and I uh, interviewed a bunch of, a bunch of female officers for another article a couple of years ago. And one of them was uh, a whole crop of uh, game wardens, which was kind of cool, but um Two of them told me that um, they had one had a friend who had just left the field completely because she had children and could not figure out for the life of them how to arrange daycare. Um, And game wardens work in the middle of nowhere. Um, And one of the other ones was currently in the process of transferring to a different town because it was where her parents and in-laws lived and they needed help from family because you can't find people to take care of your kid on the 4th of July or at three in the morning in hunting season when you've got to get up and, and get out before daybreak because that's when everybody's going to be hitting the roads. And it's just, it, it's a real practicality. Um, working remote is kind of a big thing the past two years. A lot of rural areas have really terrible internet. Um, are you going to be able to even get fast enough internet to be able to conduct your business if that's your plan? Uh, those are things that they need to look at beforehand. I, I've known people that have, have come into town for job interviews in really small places. One of them was coming from LA to a town of about 3,000 people, and they hit the city limits, and his wife started bawling. <laughs> 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 and so he carried on with the interview, but he declined the job offer because it just absolutely was not going to work. And they didn't get it till they were there. You know, my son went to a high school that um, all of the sports teams, except for, I think, football and basketball, were co-ed because the league was that small. You know, and, and I like small town living, but it definitely takes a huge adjustment. And it you is. have to, you know, from coming from a big city, I've had to sacrifice I don't want to make it sound like I'm some like martyr or something, but if I wanted to go play in a hockey league. It's not here. There's not hockey in the middle of Iowa. I hate to say it. No, no. There, I'm having trouble finding a softball league. Yep. You know, if I want to be in a band, if I want to, if I want to do karaoke, I love getting drunk and doing karaoke. It's not here. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. It's not here. So, which is, oh, whatever. It's a little thing, but that's, that's what makes up life as a little experiences. Right. So, but well, I, trade all, always... I trade all of that to yeah. not have to deal with some of the other big city problems. And, and that is completely legitimate. I mean, that was, 
a decision, you know, when we were at a point where we were thinking about having a family, um, my husband was also thinking about, you know, leaving the department he had been working with since he started in law enforcement. And we had to sit down and say, okay, you know, are we going to go towards bigger cities where he could make more money? But we know we want a family. Uh, even back then, some of the cities were basically war zones. You know, I mean, he started in law enforcement in the 80s. Cops were getting sniped in their cars left and right by gangsters back then. It was just, you know, it was expected. It was a thing. So here's the early 90s, and we're thinking of starting a family. Uh, do we want to raise this child in a war zone? No, we really kind of don't. Okay, well, we have to look at smaller places. Um, and then you also have to accept the stuff that's going to come along with that. You know, for some people, it's not acceptable. The idea of their kid going to a school with a very limited AP program that only offers one foreign language and only for three years, you know, that would be an absolute deal breaker for them. Uh, and if there's only one school, then school choice isn't really an issue. You know, it is. It's 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 a whole it's a whole other thing. Each one has its own set of headaches. Um, I think it would be mistaken for people to assume that because it's a small town, it's going to be all good neighbors and sweetness and light. Um, our small towns right now in the United States. Hey, don't have... ruin my little small town. Okay, it's I'm, all sunshine I'm... and rainbow. All right. <laughs> So you, you don't want me to say that they've got, got a higher level of addiction and suicide than the urban areas? No, it does. <laughs> that's I mean, what it's I was going to say. It absolutely does. It is. Because what, what if you don't work or you don't have much to do, what do you do? You beat your wife and abuse your children and you drink or toke or smoke. or. That sounds like a, re a really bad country song. It is a really bad country song. A lot of country songs are. So, yeah. Let's get into some of the stuff that people... And I don't want to go right off the rails and say it's all misconceptions, but the, people did have some interesting points to make. So I asked, is it more dangerous to be a cop in a city or a county? And somebody put, I'm envious of all my rural counterparts who don't have woke city councils to fight. I think that's a fair assessment. But then on the other side of that coin, you don't have county commissioners that won't give guys money for vests. That is absolutely fair. And that's pretty much what I would have said, because small towns are really awful about saying we love our police officers and then not funding them. One of the things I find, too, uh, especially in places that don't have really strong state regulations for post training and stuff like that. And that's one thing I have to say, California can be really messed up, but one of the things they do really well is things like having exactly the same requirements for police training and hiring in a town of a thousand people as they do in a town of a million. That's actually uh, one thing I wanted to, to touch on, which is not really related, but I think it's important. The training issue itself, if you work at a small agency and there's a limited number of officers, how can you go to training outside training without where are you going to get the body to fill the road? Honestly, that is one of the biggest roadblocks. It really, really is. It's not just the money for the training itself. It's backfilling the position. Um, because even one, you know, okay, say if it's a one-day training, okay, fine, we'll figure it out. But a lot of things that are more in-depth stuff are not. Um, I try to steer people toward, um, oh, there's, there's a lot of federal training, actually, that will come to you. You need to provide a venue and you need to provide people. 
Um, but it, that can be done and that reduces some of the costs, but still there is that factor of your officers that are at that training are not on the streets. And again, that's a place where uh, department heads are gonna have to get really, really innovative and they're going to have to just say it matters. It's important that they get these kinds of trainings, um, whether they have to establish MOUs with neighboring agencies to uh, um, share officers, you know, wh whatever it is they have to do, it still has to be done, but that is the biggest roadblock. And honestly, that's, that's a huge thing that impacts small agencies when they do have a critical incident. If you have three officers involved in a shooting in Chicago, so what? If you have three officers involved in a shooting and your department only has 10, that's a 30% staff reduction while they're all being investigated. Yeah. Now yeah. let's throw that into that. Let's, let's throw a, a, another loop into that and say that um, a lot of small departments have a working boss. So now say the sheriff or the police chief was involved in it. Now who's even going to talk to the press? Oh yeah. It's, it's stuff you wouldn't even think of until it yeah. actually happens. Yeah. It's um, it, it's complicated. And honestly, I think it gets so overwhelming because I, I don't want to just beat up on these guys. Sometimes I think they have so much on their plate that it's like, you know what, all I can do is what is in front of me today. And they quit even trying to look way out. There's a whole lot of them that are really visionary. I've talked with some really fantastic leaders that are trying some really amazing things. Um, one guy that was is trying a new sabbatical program. Um, he actually got his town council to, to sign off on it. And, uh, you know, thinking, what, what if we can catch guys before they burn out? You know, okay, that's a great idea. The, the police chief that I talked to in Oregon had a phenomenal recruiting program and is one of the only small departments I know of that actually has a waiting list. He's got guys banging his door down that want to work for him mm -hmm. because he is really visionary and forward thinking. We need more of those. We need yeah, more of those. The sabbatical thing is great. I, I Somebody actually asked me that based on that specific guy is, hey, if you worked at a place like this, do you think it would have saved your career? It might have. It might oh. have. I don't know. I mean, the place I worked is, like I said before, is, is very bad, but it might have. I mean, it might have staved off me leaving. It, it might have saved me a little bit. And these bigger places, gosh, if they could find ways to rotate people through, because the I'm just telling you, the wear and tear of going to 15 calls a day, traumatic calls a day, potentially, it wears on your body and mind as much as people won't admit it. And they beat their chest and say, they're fine. It does wear on you one way or another. It'd be nice to, Hey, Hey, we want you to investigate some cases for a couple, you know, for a month or two, just get off the road, different change of pay. Again, there's always staffing issues, but I mean, that's for 10 man department. You can't do that. They probably don't even have an investigator. People file their own cases. You're, it just kind of is what it is. You want to go on vacation? You better get a reserve to fill that spot. It's just a different world. It is a different world. And honestly, you know, when you're talking about the investigations, um, one of the things that can be kind of cool about a really small department, especially if you've got a good boss, it always comes back to good leadership, is there are no specialists in small departments, but that means you can have the opportunity with the appropriate training to learn to do stuff absolutely start to finish. 
And that's, that's been, been kind of a cool thing to watch. You know, it's like, uh, they're going to process their own scene. They're going to be taking their own measurements and be taking their own photos. They're going to be lifting their own prints. They're going to be doing their own, you know, preparing their own testimony for the court case when it gets that far. They'll be doing all the follow-up um, in a lot of ways because if the prosecutor's office even has an investigator, they might only have one or two. They can't do all the follow-up for every case that comes through. Um, so they'll kick it back to the sheriff's office or to the police department, and that gives the original officer the opportunity to go back and, and follow up on it. And you'll end up with some really broad experience that you might not get in a bigger department. I mean, I pick on LAPD a little bit. Again, I talked to another retired officer that was actually working in a hardware store in the small town where we lived. Um, he had moved up there to be near his family and grandkids and stuff. And he actually told us that he had never filed a report longer than an FI card his whole career. I had the yeah. privilege of a, a New York cop rode with me in the car for a couple of days that, that lateral to my agency. And he was telling me, yeah, they, their reports are two sentences. Detectives do everything after that. Exactly. And so that's those kind of guys, when they do go to a really small department, you can hear the eyes rolling because they don't know how to do anything. You know, the last time they lifted a print was when they were in the academy, you know? And so if you're coming here, you might be doing everything from accident reconstruction to a homicide investigation. And then again, as you say, some of the really big stuff you don't get to do very often. So you're never going to be like, it's not going to be second nature to you. You have to unbend enough to ask for help, you know? Um, you establish relationships with other departments, uh, maybe even bigger departments around you or uh, departments that are known to have a different expertise. And uh, to borrow a phrase from a counter-terror expert I interviewed from Ireland a while ago, he said, you need to know the people you need to know before you need to know them. And I think that's even more important in small towns than it is in big towns because you can't know everything with 10 guys or five guys or whatever. You can't know everything. So you have to know who you're going to ask and cold calling them when the blood is already on the ground. Probably not the best idea you've ever had. No, it's yeah. probably not going to work out very well. Yeah. But if you've already established that relationship with them, it's it's, it's no different than, you know, if you're the guy who works out in the country, you want to get to know the game wardens because the game wardens have the keys to all those gates out there on the closed roads. And I have to apologize. A lot of people wrote in on this and there's just no way I'm going to get to everybody. But one of the things that went up here is it's not less dangerous, but small town cops are more clueless, hence the stigma. And I work both is what this person says. And I can only take their word for it. Uh, again, we're, I think it's, it's very easy to generalize, but it's different experience. You might, maybe you're clueless on this type of call because you've, you've never had it. Even in the 10 years that you've had it, that doesn't mean you're a bad cop. It's just different things come across different ways. I, I don't like the whole like, well, they work in a small town. They're an idiot. I worked in a big city. There was a lot of cops. Love them. Idiots. Complete idiots. And it's probably easier to, easier to cover it up if you're in a big department because there's always somebody else who's better at that stuff oh yeah this uh i'm gonna call this guy because they know what to do here it, it's yeah you you can easily it's way easier well i can't say this with any authority but i would assume in a big place it's way easier to hide small place it's it's probably pretty difficult to hide from stuff 
oh, it's really difficult to hide. And that's another thing too. Like, you know, I had a conversation with some friends ages ago and they had been down in Southern California and then moved to a really small town. And they were talking about, uh, you know, promotional tests and stuff like that. And said, you know, if you, if you test for Sergeant and you don't make it, but 300 other people tested, it's a lot easier not to take it personally than if only three tested. Right. Yeah. And, and one of them was a retired chief's son. Some of the things that came across Instagram were just, I guess, ignorant. Sorry, guys. Some, some of you guys are ignorant, but a lot of people made very similar points about like, Hey, I work in a small town. I work in a small agency. I'm the only guy for a thousand miles or, Hey, look, I have no backup or, Hey, I'm a city guy, but my backup's within a couple of minutes. So I'm, I'm glad people understand that part of it is when you work in a small place, if something really hit, you're alone. Or maybe there's just two of you and not 10 of you. Very, It would be very rare for there to be 10 of you. You know, um, you, you might be able to cobble that together in some places where you have like strings of small towns, um, probably more like where you are in the Midwest. Um, I've spent all my adult life in the West. So California and the other mountain West states. And the geography is just immense. I've known of instances of officers driving code three for literal hours to get to a hot call. And by definition, it ain't hot anymore by the time you get there. But it doesn't mean that that officer didn't need that help that urgently. Officer time, by the way, is a beautiful cover officer sometimes. Say who is? Officer time. Oh, well, this is that. Officer time solves a ton of crime. I'm just throwing it out there. Run code three as long as you can and see if right. they're all gone when you get there. Officer time is really good when you get that silly call about a bunch of kids fighting in a park and you're, you know, you just run your siren. Maybe you go like two miles an hour until you get really close and then people start running blocks <laughs> ahead because you had the siren. Oh no, they're all gone. Oh no. Terrible. So- which also, of- if you do that at the wrong time, that could be problematic too, if there's like a shooting or something. So it doesn't always work out as well as you want. But I'll tell you what, that, that siren breaks up a lot of stuff and solves it's a not lot of that, crime. It's not that different from being a parent in some ways where you really have to think about whether you want the answer to a question when you hear the noise coming down the hall. Do you really want to say, what are you doing down there? Or do you just want to yell, stop it? It's usually just stop. I don't even want to know at this point. Exactly. I'll deal, I'll deal with the fallout later. I just just stop. Who cares? And it's the same with the kids in the park, right? Ultimately, what you really wanted was for them to stop it. Exactly. A lot of the stuff and the Instagram questions is is really stuff that we've already hit. So I don't I don't see a need to like plow old ground, so to speak. Which is, by the way, that is I heard that in court one time, and that is like my favorite phrase. <laughs> uh, like that this is great. Like a, that's a very Iowa Turner phrase. It sounds like. No, I heard it. I heard it actually in Colorado. Um, oh, okay. Where uh, I guess they plow some stuff there now too, more they, cotton than weed anymore. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, before we we wrap this thing up, because again, I, and I apologize because I, I got seriously like probably twenty or thirty messages and all the Instagram stuff. So hopefully, I kind of covered everything people wanted to talk about. Well, one thing I actually I didn't cover, which I found very interesting. A guy he responded and said, "Hey, I've worked in cities. I've worked in counties." They're, you know, like we've been saying, they're dangerous for different reasons. And, you know, sometimes, you know, rednecks are more dangerous than the city folks sometimes. He says, but I'm not a U.S. cop. And I was like thinking my wheel started turning like well, rednecks are a thing. 
so this guy is a cop in Macedonia, which I had to Google, really? uh, which is outside of Greece. Did I get yeah. that right? And yeah. I was like, there's rednecks there. And he's like, oh, yeah, they're all over, which I don't know if the guy was pulling my leg or not, but I didn't know there was rednecks in Macedonia. But now we know. That one's foreign to me. I talked to cops in England and in Scotland and in Ireland and Australia and in Canada. But no, Macedonia is new to me. And rednecks in Macedonia, newer still. Which is early in the running for the name of the podcast. But the, I feel like it'll take away from the subject matter. So maybe not. Rednecks in Macedonia. Yeah. Who would have thought it? Well, so I have some questions that I like to ask people. And I'm just going to throw out anybody listening. I'm not going to ask her the question. Okay. I cannot do that. I'm just, I'm not going <laughs> to do it. We, we probably know the answer anyway, so we're, I'm not asking it, okay? I, I cannot bring myself to do it. But I do have some things I need to know. Now, obviously, you weren't a cop, but do you have an opinion on what the best patrol car of all time is? Oh, Lord. Um, one with a cage and really good brakes and tires and lights that work. That is probably the best answer that's not Crown Vic that I've ever heard. <laughs> I've never driven take- one. I just know what I would want someone I cared about to be in you know and you know cops we take that for granted like there's guys out there gals out there that that don't have you know they have tires they don't have cages they don't have really basic stuff which has been kind of the theme of the podcast so that that's enlightening and that that made me feel guilty a little bit but I'm still gonna say Crown Vic (laughs) it's a classic you can't go wrong with a classic it's like the little black dress right yeah, you don't mess with tradition. I'm just throwing that out there. This is, a, this is a newer question on the podcast. I'd be curious what you think of it. What do you think about the, the sheepdog analogy? Do you think that's overdone or, or what thoughts do you have on it? You know what? This is one place where coming from rural areas is, is going to lend a different perspective. I love that illustration. Um, And I love it because I have lived most of my adult life in a place where working dogs are common. Now, the thing that's different about the sheepdog where I see it is I I think the public kind of gets a, okay, well, you know, wolves are are mean and scary and sheepdogs are are fuzzy and protective. The thing is a real working dog. And one of my blog posts is actually called the working dogs. I'll send it to you later because the whole point is that everyone wants the flocks which are literal where I live, they're sheep and lambs or, or they're, they're cows and cow-calf pairs. These are ranchers and herders and, and people where I live and their working dogs will do whatever it takes to keep harm from coming to them. And the thing is, the public doesn't actually want to see how the sheepdog gets that accomplished. Where we went on a, a prior podcast is, is it's been kind of a, abused to a certain point. I really like the analogy too. I, I think it is a great analogy somebody made a comment the other day on one of the Facebook posts that, that made me think a little bit. And, and I think it was kind of tongue in cheek, but the guy made a really good point. And he basically said, I don't, you know, I don't think we should as government agents be going around telling people that they're sheep, <laughs> you know, well, yes and, and no. but because... like, let's be honest. There are some people that are, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Well, I, the I... thing is too, have you read the original sheepdog? analogy i mean the 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 really old school one the the sheep wasn't someone who was stupid the sheep were the the normal citizens going about their productive lives without hurting anybody 
Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where everything gets twisted, right? Like the same as the dog has been twisted. I think some people might hear like, oh, wait, the cops think we're all sheep. Well, and some of help. that is because she, sheep has been used in a derogatory fashion, especially on social media, right? How many times have you heard, yeah, well, I'll just bend a sheep, you know, or sheeple and things like that. And that's where people associated anymore. Um, I would tend to take it again, you know, these are we need sheep they bring us all sorts of useful things there are things we can't do without them but they are they don't hurt anybody and they really can't protect themselves and honestly they don't really understand that they could be in danger because it's not their job to look around and see danger everywhere they are they're just going about their business doing their thing um and the other place i would take it um and we'll go back to the matters of faith i talked about with with marriage at the very beginning God calls us sheep. And if you're a sheep, you don't have to be big and strong and you don't have to be super smart and you don't have to be brave. You just have to do what you know is right every single day. And that's not a bad thing, but that's a hard analogy for people to get their heads around too. But I can see how it has come to be offensive. Some of the guys that are using it as a macho thing are probably some of the same ones that are sticking Punisher skulls on their trucks when they shouldn't because that guy was not a hero. And anti-hero is not something that gets taught often enough in literature classes. Yeah, don't put a Punisher skull on your rifle either or your gun. Just throwing it out there. put anything on those things that didn't come it's not a serial you know, number, then just leave it. You know what's funny is I think people, not just me, just not you, a lot of people have been saying that for years, but dudes still go, and if it's your personal gun, whatever, but stuff they're going to use in the department, people still go and get dumb stuff and put it on their guns and on their gear and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. And uh, you can only lead the, the horse to water, right? Well, and that's one of those places where they have to be taught. And honestly, it should probably start in the academy. They should be taught to think of something from the point of view. How is this going to look when it gets to court? Because it will. Well, here's the thing is, is they are. And I can tell you that because that came up in my academy. So I, I would have been like nine years. Oh, so they taught them, but they didn't listen. Yes. No that, and that's. No that's way. Way. <laughs> I've seen stuff happen that we went to the same in service together, dude. They literally told us not to do that. <laughs> List, like, I, I hate in-service like the next guy, right? But it is important, and you could potentially be held liable if the department says, yeah, we trained them up on that. And, and that's you why they totally disregard it. <laughs> yeah. Some of it is stupid. I hate some of it. You have to be paying attention even if it's stupid because it's your job. I'm just throwing it out there. That is exactly so. And, and when it comes to court... The first thing the attorney is going to say is show me your training records and they will. Yep. But people don't listen, but that's okay. I mean, it's not okay. It's far from okay, but it is what it is. I will, I will pay attention at in service if I'm ever a cop again. And I suggest you do too, even if it's stupid. Cause even if it, if it, here's the other thing is if you're paying attention, then you can ask questions. It's amazing how that works. The best is when people aren't paying attention and they ask a question about something that was very specifically covered, and we all miss lunch because you're an idiot. That's never happened. <sighs> never, ever happened. I'm sure that doesn't happen in the private sector either, but. I'm pretty sure it does. When I've 
but <laughs> I've worked for the private sector, I've worked for government agencies, I've worked in public schools, and I'm always the person with her hand in the air going, oh, wait, what about this? Why are we doing that? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. But if it's, you know, if you're asking a question about something that was very specifically stated that you're like, well, what about this? Yeah, we, we, we just address that. That's oh, where that's I have different. the issue. That's yeah, where I that's, have the that's issue. That's different. That yeah, is I, a stupid question. There is such a thing. There is, there is, yeah, there is such a thing as a stupid question. But I guess it's better that you ask and found out and whatever. But still, don't. I want to eat. Anyway, <laughs> I get, I get angry when I'm hungry. It's hangry. It's a thing. Charlie, do you have any imparting words of wisdom for all the millions of people that are going to listen to this podcast someday? Oh, that's a really intimidating thought. I really can't think of anything too terribly much except they tell people all the time mayberry is a myth wear your vest look after each other you guys thanks for listening to another poorly made podcast i think this one was actually almost on the edge of okay made so i hope you guys enjoyed it well i appreciate you guys keep doing the things you guys do to help support the podcast i got the link at the end so you can be the monthly donor merch. I got all kinds of cool, fun stuff. I got a couple new ideas I'll try and put out in the next couple of weeks. And at this point, it might be gone by the time this episode comes out. The uh, poorly made police memes coins are for sale. So go look for those. Those sold out within a day last time. So hopefully they're still around when this podcast comes out. And of course, take care of the sponsors of the podcast, because without them, I'd have to go get a real job. And remember, if you go to these folks, let them know I sent you. It helps me out quite a bit. With that said, remember, wear your vest. It's all bullshit. Well, that's not bullshit. Wear your vest. And I love most of you. Bye-bye.